Welcome to the Executive Function Podcast, where we make the invisible keys to success easy for you to teach your child. We'll go beyond theory to proven action, helping you create peace and independence at home and at school. With your host, educational author, award-winning teacher, and celebrated learning coach, Sarah Kesti. Today, I get to interview my mentor, the executive function, autism, behavior guru, Patty Shatter. I really hope you enjoy our time. Spoiler alert, I'm a little bit starstruck by Patty, but it's really exciting to speak with her and learn from her, and I hope you enjoy all of her perspective as well. Here is Patty Shatter. Well, thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. So I know today's kids are experiencing distance learning. Do you have any words of encouragement or advice for parents today? I would say probably the best advice um, to give to parents who are working to support distance education for any child is really make sure you're putting your health and safety and above all else, your relationship first. And I think this is really important to remember in any situation where a parent needs to support their child um, with academics. You really are first and foremost their parent and that parent-child relationship and trust has to be front and center always, but especially during these really scary and uncertain times. Yeah, that's such an important distinction too, is that you know parents can stay parents and that with distance learning, it's not homeschool. So our teachers are actually still the primary teachers. Parents are kind of in that facilitation role, which I know is especially tricky if you have a kid that's experiencing some challenges like autism or ADHD. But yeah, I appreciate your point that we have to focus on that emotional piece. I, I think remembering too to just, you know, cut everyone some slack right now. Um, <laughs> this is a new situation. Um, for all of us, you know, parents, the students, the teachers, and I really think everyone's doing their best to try to figure it out and make it work. But, um, you know, grace is important right now. Yeah. Yes. That's such a good reminder for ourselves too. Like you are enough, you are doing enough, you're trying your best. And I think that's a good mantra to keep in mind while we're, um, tending to beat ourselves up. (laughs) Um, so I have to admit, I was really geeked out when you said yes, that you would be um, on the podcast because you, Patty, you were the one that 16 years ago introduced executive function to me at this two week training that I just happened to get a last minute spot in. And at that point, I already had two teaching credentials, but that was the first time I was hearing about executive function. Why do you think executive function is like lesser known by teachers? And what do you think we can do to change that? Well, you know, I think that any condition that's neurologically based where there's no real physical symptoms is always a little tricky. Um, People can look at a kid with, you know, say ADHD or high functioning autism or learning disability. And really on the surface, they see a kid who looks like they ought to be able to do seemingly simple tasks like organizing their desk or their backpack or keeping track of their assignments. Um, Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, when that child fails to do these things, it's really easy for people to default to kind of defining it as bad behavior or a result of laziness. Um, and then, you know, usually the go-to strategies for those things are, you know, shame and punishment and kind of punitively responding um, right. as if the child, you know, really is intending to um, not do these things. Um, and, you know, I'm sure we've both seen a lot of the devastation that can come from that approach. Um, right. Punishing a child for something that really is a manifestation of their disability um, can cause a lot of harm, like anxiety and depression and dropping out of school and lots of the, the things that, that I'm sure you and I have seen over the years. But, um, you know, I think that a, a significant thing that's lacking for many educators is the opportunity to really gain that deeper understanding of um, and about some of these neurological um, and neurodevelopmental disabilities and what their real manifestations are, like impaired executive functions. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, we scratched the surface about a lot of these disabilities in the current credentialing programs. And, um, you know, I think that that we really need to make an effort to go a lot deeper, not only in pre-service, but also, and especially probably, um, you know, in that initial, you know, couple years of teaching um, by doing some good in-servicing and supporting of new teachers in learning about the, the neurodevelopmental differences that a lot of these kids experience and um, providing them with a lot of support um, around learning strategies that can be helpful so that they don't default to that sort of typical, um, you know, response of thinking that it's just bad behavior or lack of motivation. Right. And when you don't know, it's very easy to make that assumption. And you're bringing up a good point because I've been on the advocacy side of changing the teaching credentials because I was credentialed separately from my general ed peers. Um, I mean, I have a general ed credential as well, but I was in a specialized program and I just kept thinking like, this doesn't make any sense. Like if you're an RSP teacher, you see the kids with disabilities, you know, you're responsible for the whole school. So you may see a cadre of third graders for about an hour a day. Well, where are they the rest of the time? <laughs> They're in general ed. So, you know, separating and having us sort of be like the gatekeepers for that information is insane. But your point about adding it to teacher induction programs like BITSA is such a great idea because then it's the application plus the theoretical learning. Um, I could see how that could really shape some teaching careers. Yeah. And I agree. I think that, that there's a base level of understanding that any educator needs to have about neurodevelopmental differences. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that base level of understanding needs to cross all credentials, really. So the gen ed teachers and those with gen ed credentials um, need to know, know what to look for and know to avoid the punitive and punishing kinds of, of responses and mm -hmm. learn how to support these students. Um, and probably avoid a lot of the frustrations and even maybe even some of the referrals to more intense services um, if we had um, more kind of frontline knowledge about um, hidden disabilities. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't even thought of that, but they could be the ones kind of scouting for kids that might need intervention and 
making those referrals before it's more based on behavior, you know, because we see the referrals spike in about fourth grade, but that's usually when some of the coping behaviors kick in for kids that, you know, they have like some pretty good ways to avoid work by acting like turkeys (laughs) and getting kicked out of class when if they had had the strategies to access the material, you know, by referral early on, I think that would be, it could change our trajectory. Well, and you know, that actually is how I sort of came upon and discovered this whole um, concept about executive functioning as a behavior analyst. Because I was really, yeah, I was seeing these kids third, fourth, fifth grade, usually, who, um, you know, would get referred for behavior uh, issues. And, you know, there was always that underlying sort of common thread of deficits that I was seeing in, in these kids. And it had everything to do with their uh, challenges with executive functions. And, you know, they were acting out in order to escape and avoid things that they couldn't do without support or trying to escape and avoid being humiliated um, mm-hmm. in front of their peers because they they weren't able to, you know, keep their desk neat or, or get things turned in on time without a lot of support. So they ended up with me. Yeah. And they end up with me too. I remember I had a kid that was just devastated and, you know, he showed his devastation through anger, but, you know, we scratched the surface when he and I talked and he just cried because with your desk example, his teacher had dumped his desk on the floor in front of the class and was like, clean this up. And it was humiliating and isolating. And I mean, it really set him up for a horrible fifth grade experience. And it's exactly what you're talking about. He got into some very creative ways to escape that class, which on the surface looked like naughty behavior, but he was always trying to access me because I provided a space where he was accepted and we could kind of strategize what he needed. But yeah, Yeah. that, that like puts a a rock in my stomach. That's like half inspiration to like not stop. And then half just devastation that this is the pattern that we're in. But you know, we take it as inspiration and we move on. Um, so I know we talked a little bit before just professionally, and you've shared some great examples of executive function supports and developments that have really transformed the lives of kids that you've worked with. Do you have any you want to share here? Well, I mean, I've seen so many examples over the years of how, you know, really strategic support and application of of strategy teaching can turn a kid's life around um, and their families, um, you know, as they see the independence really start to grow. And, you know, I I can speak to it also as a parent. I've seen it with my own son, um, who is now 18, graduated high school, Um, has ADHD and, um, you know, he experienced all of those challenges that we just talked about and suffered a few humiliations. And, um, you know, I think as a result is pretty resilient, but um, also um, really had to learn a lot of strategies um, and is now, you know, as a almost adult, I mean, age-wise he is, but as he's learning to be an adult and take on that role, Um, He's really seeing the benefits of those in the real world. But I think that one thing that I can say is it does not happen overnight. You know, it's a real process to embed these strategies. And it starts by, you know, frankly, modeling and seeing the 
things like checklists and calendars and routines, um, you know, be, be modeled and implemented, um, followed by lots of practice and multiple refinements. Um, <laughs> whatever the systems are, you know, I, I think there's not really any of us who are still using the same organizational strategies we used when we were teenagers. Um, no. We make refinements and, and so do our students. Um, but there's, there's no quick and easy fix, rather a lot of sustained support to learn and use the compensatory strategies until they really become second nature. But, you know, I think that the grand prize really is hearing a student be able to describe to other people their particular learning style, what they need, and really seeking out the resources that they need to thrive. And also, and this a lot of people don't like to hear, but it's very true, when they're able to self-advocate that something's not working for them, you know, to be able to have their own voice and say, you know, this, this isn't a match for me. This isn't, um, you know, something that that's going to work for me and I need to do something different. Yeah, I agree. And think of the executive function involved in that. I mean, just having the self-awareness to know what you need versus what's happening and to be able to organize your thoughts and prioritize that that's something that needs to be expressed. I mean, there's so many layers <laughs> involved in that. So that's like a real demonstration of um, actualized executive function skills. So that's a great example. And I think your point that it's ongoing is so important for our listeners to hear and for, to remind teachers and parents that, you know, I used to think that success was when the kids would be perfectly independent, never need any help. Like I felt like I was failing if kids still needed me, but then, you know, you, you step back and think like, I still need some supports for my own personal challenges. Like the success isn't in not needing help. The success is in identifying when you need help and being able to advocate and access and use that help. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, all of us rely on different methods for keeping organized. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever lost your phone, but <laughs> that's what I think about, you know, in terms of a lot of our kids um, not having an organizational system or strategy or person to go to. It's like losing your phone and not knowing where am I supposed to be? When am I supposed to be there? Who am I supposed to be communicating with? Um, it's a pretty scary feeling, but it definitely takes time and, um, you know, no one learns anything overnight. But I think that the thing that, that that parents and teachers who are supporting kids who have these executive functioning challenges is it's going to take them a lot more trials and a lot more opportunities for it to become second nature than it would a neurotypical kid. You know, neurotypical kid might see or, or practice one or two times um, a new organizational system or routine and make adaptations to it on their own. But our kids are going to require a lot more practice and support. Yeah, that's a really good point. And then also as the strategies kind of become boring and routine, they might need a little shakeup yeah. <laughs> because, you know, our brain chemistry responds to that and we just aren't as motivated or interested with that attentional piece to access things that are just routine. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So don't be afraid to 
roll with that and make changes and spice things up or, you know, take their lead on some of those kinds of things, you know, and, and, and when they start to actually advocate that they're getting bored with something or it's not working anymore, or they want to change. That's a good thing because they're recognizing mm-hmm. and voicing it. So we can celebrate some of those uh, as, you know, some self-advocacy victories. Yeah. And I think like a theme I'm hearing you say is it's, perspective. These kids aren't broken. We're not going to fix them. We're just going to change our own perspective on what we're looking for. And then because of that changed perspective, that would be, that would change our interactions with our Absolutely. Kids. It's all the way that you think about it and talk about it and view it. I know. Isn't that crazy? Like there really is no true truth. It's our interpretation. Well, and there really is no normal um, or <laughs> right. Typical, um, you know, that, that anybody subscribes to, you know, we're all unique, but um, the neurodevelopmental differences that, you know, a lot of, of our kids enter into life, you know, with and are facing in terms of their learning, um, they just have to learn a little bit different way of doing things. Yeah, yeah, which I know in a classroom setting, like I'm not teacher shaming at all, because there's so much pressure for teachers to get their kids to perform. So when you have a kid that needs extra, but you don't know what it is, it, it does feel frustrating, not, not frustration with the kid, but frustration with the situation. And you feel a little helpless, like you want to do more, but you're not sure what. And so I hear that. as Yeah. Well. Oh, definitely. I'm sure parents can relate to that also, you know, um, you're, you're doing your best and you're still not hitting the nail on the head. Right. Right. And sometimes it just takes like geeking out like you and I do, <laughs> you know, which is why I'm, I'm super honored to connect with you. This is so exciting. I'm trying not to be too starstruck. So sorry. <laughs> you know, it's so funny to me because, you know, it, Watching you take this on over the years has kind of geeked me out. <laughs> I've been really excited to see, um, you know, how you've you know, expanded on a lot of the strategies and just the success that you've had. And now you reaching out to others to help them learn and understand, you know, it's, it's uh, paying it forward for sure. You planted the seed. This is all your fault. <laughs> so there are so many facets to executive function, you know, like I consider myself an expert yet. I'm still discovering things all the time. It's like an onion, like you peel away one layer, you find another one below it. Do you have any main categories of executive function skills that you recommend teachers and parents start with? Yeah. So there definitely are some, I kind of call them like the base level skills and strategies that I always suggest people start with. And we actually had an opportunity to outline them um, in the study skills curriculum, which we published in um, 2017. Um, the curriculum maps out the scope and sequence of executive functioning skills with a series of accompanying lesson plans that can be implemented in the classroom across a, a year. The basic skills really start with, first of all, becoming more aware of organization and its impacts on daily life. So, one fun mm-hmm. lesson that we do right away is um, have the teacher basically kind of turn her classroom upside down yeah, before <laughs> the students arrive for the day. So they walk in and there's just this absolute chaos going on in the classroom. And the lesson becomes about how chaos you know, can make people feel. 
and how it can be detrimental to learning and succeeding and, and getting through the day. So a lot of experiential kinds of lessons and activities are really important because you know, you can tell a kid, tell the cows come home what they need to be doing or ought to be doing. But, you know, really they have to, they have to own it and they have to experience it and buy into it um, in order to really get that hook. So after, you know, sort of that awareness building, um, next we suggest learning how to follow several organizational routines. You know, routines after a while become habits and habits mm-hmm. that can help with organization and preparedness are never a bad thing. And then another base level strategy that can be really helpful is learning how to keep and use um, things like checklists. Um, And at first, that might be the teacher modeling for a student how to use a checklist, creating it for them and and working with them and reinforcing them for using it. But, you know, the goal Mm -hmm. is that the student should learn how to create their own checklist and, you know, really start to generate the external strategies that can be helpful. Although I will say, and I don't know about you, but I think that a lot of people love when they're provided a checklist with everything that needs to be done and don't really have to think about um, all of the components. My husband always asked me for the honey-do list, you know, so (laughs) I think learning to use it, but also learning to develop it are both important, but there's definitely going to be times in anyone's life where just getting sort of that pre-made checklist of how to do things can be really helpful. That's such a good point because it really is a, it's a cognitive load to think about. You have to like visualize what am I doing tomorrow? What's needed of me? Kind of backwards plan in terms of, well, this is due on Friday. What steps do I need to take today? So having it given to you is kind of nice. And that's funny. My husband makes his own to-do list on a, on a whiteboard, but then I'll sneak things on it <laughs> or Or um, we'll even talk it through and prioritize so that we're on the same page in terms of what each of us can do to help support the team of us. But yeah, checklists don't go away. I mean, I still remember my dad always would have an index card with his list Mm -hmm. for the day, every day, even on the weekends. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, you know, most people in some way, shape or form use checklists um, just throughout their lives. A shopping list is a good example. You know, you walk into the store with that and you're likely to forget something. But if you take a couple minutes beforehand to write down all the things that you need, you're a lot more likely to have success. So, you know, I think that seeing it modeled and and for parents and teachers pointing out when you're using it, look, I'm using this because, you know, it helps me stay organized. And then transitioning to the student using it and then eventually learning how to do it themselves. That's sort of the progression, Um, but it doesn't happen overnight and it does, you know, really (laughs) strategic, systematic teaching. So. Yeah. I'm hearing you say too, using those think alouds and just normalizing, like making that invisible structure visible. Cause I think we take it for granted that, oh, well, you've seen me use it. So why aren't you using it? You know, you can kind of shame people about it, but instead making that invisible piece like, hmm, mom needs to do all these things tomorrow. How should I keep Mm -hmm. track? You know, and I know it sounds cheesy when I say it with that tone, but the idea is just to have it out loud and available for our kids to 
access and think. Well, and you're bringing up something too that um, we've seen really successful come middle and high school. You know, peers can be really awesome instructors of a lot of these strategies and using, you know, sort of peer mediated approaches to getting kids to buy in can be incredibly effective because, you know, if they see some other well thought of popular kid using some of these strategies and, and talking about the strategies, you know, it, it kicks up the cool factor a bit. There've been a couple of programs that I've consulted with recently who even have their study skills class as a peer mentored opportunity. So they have study coaches and they have kids that are in there because they're really, you know, needing to learn these study skills and life skills and telling you what those peer mentors are genius when it comes to getting the buy-in and and helping to adapt the strategies so that they're, you know, kind of real world. That inspires me to rethink kind of how we structure our study skills classes, because that's such a powerful point in terms of developmental brain needs. And adolescents, you are looking for peer acceptance and those social connections. And why not work with the brain? (laughs) You know, why not take advantage of where they are? Because I think I see it as a blessing that as I get older, I care less what other people think, which is really liberating, but a teenage brain hurts if it doesn't have that acceptance. So building that in is such a great way to ensure that the strategies are actually used and generalized to other places and are Well, and I'd also argue that it's really good for the peer mentor also, because they get to demonstrate some leadership skills and you know, they get to learn about, you know, neurodiversity and uh, the variations in the way that people think about things. And, and I'll tell you, I've seen some really cool friendships come out of this too. You know, I have one example where um, one of the, the older leadership students was a mentor for a younger freshman student uh, with high functioning autism. And the student with autism was masterful at Uh, multiple video games and knew all of the cheats and all of the ways to score big and um, taught them to his peer mentor. And of course, you know, that incrementally increased that um, mentor's cool points because he was now masterful at these video games that everyone was playing. (laughs) It was mutually beneficial, um, worked out pretty well for both of them. So Yeah. And I think that's, again, we're talking about perspective. That's a great perspective to have. It's not like helper and helpee. It's this mutual situation where if we can facilitate their seeing the strengths in the others and then just kind of let it go from there. I mean, monitor, obviously, to make sure it's still appropriate, but it doesn't have to be perceived levels, like a differential between the students. It's just different strength profiles. Absolutely. I know you specialize in autism. I specialize more in ADHD, but obviously I love my kids with autism. And attention is probably the biggest complaint that I hear from my teachers when they're trying to access strategies and things like that for their kids. Do you have any top strategies for self-management and attention that you've taught kids? Yeah, so I think probably the most important kind of first step for teaching self-management of attention is to first really work on self-monitoring. In other words, students have to learn what attention is and what it isn't and learn to identify when it's happening and when it's not happening before they can, you know, really work to sort of self-correct attending. And, you know, many of our kids honestly don't even know when they're not paying attention. 
that's really the first skill to teach. There's some fun and easy ways to be able to teach it. And, and I've done this, you know, with individual students. I actually worked on this with my own son a lot during homework time. I do it with an entire mm -hmm. class. And it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, after you teach what attention is and isn't and sort of role play it and give examples of it, you can actually set a timer. And when the timer goes off, have the kids do a self-check. And they can either mark on a little piece of paper or, you know, thumb up, thumb down, any method of being able to sort of self-report if they were on task or off task when the timer goes off. And the idea is not to shame or punish the kids who are off task, because actually, if they report correctly, that's you give them praise. And, and you know, if you're using some kind of reinforcement system, they're in reinforcement for being honest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just doing that for a few weeks during, you know, sort of sustained reading or an activity where you would hope that they would be able to, to stay on task fairly independently can work wonders. You know, kids will, will say things like, I didn't even know I was spacing out, you know, and then, then the timer went off and I went, oh, <laughs> that's right. Um, but that starts to become something that they're more aware of. And just that level of self-awareness then leads to many students learning how to then self-correct. But you have to, to know it before you can change it. So um, working on that awareness first. Right. And what a good point, because I think the other opportunity for kids to become aware is when they're yelled <laughs> yeah. at, you know, and then that puts you in the defensive space rather than the calm, you know, I'm going to reflect on what my brain is doing. Right. So it's just, again, Patty, it's perspective. Well, and, and, you know, if you think about the students spacing out, you know, sort of daydreaming, not attending to the task and then gets yelled at, you start to create a pattern with that kind of thing. You know, I go off task, mm -hmm. someone corrects me, I go back on task. So you're creating this um, sort of inadvertent dependency. Whereas if you're doing it through, you know, a regular practice self-monitoring, that's creating some independence with, you know, being able to identify and self-correct. And that's really what we want to do. We, we don't want them to always rely on other people to prompt them when things are happening. The, the whole real goal is to develop some strategies that can be internalized and, and owned by the student. I agree with you. And I saw, I don't know if you know Mike Laherty, but he, that works in Sac County. I saw him teach one time and he was saying that, you know, if you don't teach the self-monitoring and independence and their ability to access strategies inside, then they're going to seek opportunities where they're told what to do. And those, the only places you can get that as an adult are the military and prison. And there's nothing wrong with the military, but I would like my kids to have more than two options. Yeah, yeah so true. <laughs> Every time I'm like, oh, this is hard. Like, I just want them to just magically have these skills, you know, and, you know, cause I get, I get to that point where it's just the onion layers are overwhelming. And then I think, well, the, their menu will have two options as adults if we can't figure this out. So take some space, regroup and back on it. Well, and there's so many great examples of, you know, just highly successful adults, you know, with ADHD and with high functioning autism and who have executive functioning challenges. And I think many of them will tell you that what made a difference for them was having an amazing mentor who supported them and 
you know, being given these tools and strategies in the space to really, you know, learn about themselves and what works for them and being able to do that in a positive, supportive environment. Yeah. It's so, so important. I know we mentioned this a little bit earlier, but sometimes the one of the challenges with executive function supports is they can fade in effectiveness as they are more normal, less enticing, or even as students grow up, they kind of grow out mm-hmm. of strategies. How can parents and teachers continue to coach kids when the strategies fade? Are there ways to get kids to seek their own strategies eventually? Well, I think one good approach is, you know, sort of doing a, a check-in and getting them to do some self-check. Like, how are things going? Are you satisfied with how, you know, things are going right now? And, and really coaching them to think back about a strategy that might have been helpful previously. And, you know, talk through, you know, is that something that you could bring back or is, are there ways that we can adapt it or modify it, you know, so that it could work again. And I think that changing up kind of old strategies and varying them and sort of bringing them into the here and now is a good thing for all of us. Um, And I think technology is really key in a lot of this, definitely kicks up that cool kid factor, right? When you really cool technology and know how to use it, you know, that that can really create a lot of buy-in. So, you know, maybe there's a a new strategy that is technology-based that could be of a support and and sort of exploring some of those, you know, with, with students can be incredibly helpful. What a great point. And there's always, maybe there's a list of five apps that kind of do the same thing. So if one is less effective now, maybe we switch over to the next one and it's new. So our brains are going to give us more focused juice because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. When you do sort of kick it up a notch or decide, you know, to make a change in strategy or the student decides to make a change in strategy, there's going to be some acquisition time. There's going to be some time needing to learn that new routine and procedure or that new app or looking at the pros and cons of it. So I just want to remind people that it's not just, and it's done. Anytime you Mm -hmm. change up a strategy or bring back a strategy, there's that, that practice time. That's such a good point. And you're not failing as a student or a parent or teacher if the strategy doesn't work right away. Sometimes the kids just aren't developmentally ready, but you've given them a tool that maybe stays in the toolbox for a few years. And then with a little bit of coaching to remember it, they can access it when they And you know, I'm really glad that you brought that up because that developmental readiness is so important, no matter what kind of skill we're talking about, right? We could be talking about reading. We could be talking about math. We could be talking about physical development. And I think that it's, it's important to think about the developmental readiness of the, the student that you're working with and definitely take that into account. And, you know, if they're not ready right now, maybe continuing to provide some additional external support for a little while is key and reintroducing it in a few months, um, you know, as the, as the brain matures and as there is a bit more of developmental readiness to take some of these things on. Right. And you can even use your own organizational strategy where I've even put in my own teacher planner, like talk to so-and-so about this and that a couple months from now, because I know that it's not applicable now, but it may be in the future. So yeah, that's a great idea. And it's not a fail. If 
you know, I think the only fail would be if you sit back and say, I give up. Otherwise, everything you try is not going to work. Like I've had glorious failures and some have been comical. (laughs) So do you have any times where a strategy just didn't work? You bringing up the comical made me think of one specific example. I was consulting in a high school program for um, students with high functioning autism. And, you know, part of the the curriculum, we did a lot around executive functioning because, you know, that's one of the manifestations of, of autism is some challenges in this area, but also a lot around social skills um, because it definitely has impacts mm-hmm. on social understanding. And <laughs> this one year working with the, the teacher, she had a, a group of boys and one young man was incredibly interested in dating and really was just captivated by this, this whole thing that was, you know, going on with dating and going to dances and going to parties. And he decided that he really wanted to um, go to the homecoming dance. So we did a whole series of social skills lessons around, you know, dating and asking people out and what to look for. And one of the strategies that we were using to help keep them all organized with, you know, sort of the social rules and the steps was a a variation of a checklist that was sort of like a flow chart, you know, so if this, then you go on to the Mm -hmm. next step. And if this, you go on to the next step. And so (laughs) we'd worked on this for quite a few weeks at this point. And I got a call from the teacher and she goes, you're never going to guess what I just saw. And I said, what? She goes, well, you know, David was out at lunchtime um, trying to find himself a date for the upcoming um, dance. Yeah. He said <laughs> the only problem was that he had his his flow chart, his checklist on a clipboard while he was talking to girls. <laughs> oh, I mean, he owned That's that strategy, awesome. but just missed that little subtle social nuance that that probably wasn't a appropriate. So yeah, yeah, that one stuck with me. Kind of, we forgot the last step. <laughs> yes, but it's too funny. Do you know how it went? He did. He, he ended, ended up, up with, a, um, with a, a, a very, very nice date with a good friend of his who he um, had known for a very long time. They'd been in some classes together and she was delighted to, to be asked and to get to go to a, a dance because I don't think that she'd ever experienced one either. So it ended up working out, but like I said, one of those lessons learned that, you know, you got to kind of help transition from the external supports to the internal supports sometimes. And we just kind of forgot that step. I mean, it's comical and boy, <laughs> do I have some funny examples of <laughs> um, things that kids have honestly asked me that, or said that they genuinely thought were okay, that were kind of I try to delineate thinking thoughts and saying thoughts. (laughs) And um, sometimes the thinking thoughts are hilarious, but it does come down to perspective because I could easily take offense and feel like you should know that this isn't appropriate and, you know, take the punitive way. But just saying like, oh, man, I think we bumped into a spot where you didn't know the social rule and the invisible rule is this. So next time you need to, you know, and just kind of structuring it that way, like, whoops, decision trees need to stay in your mind. (laughs) Don't take them out on a clipboard. Again, I think the theme of this conversation is perspective because we could have been frustrated or kind of 
reflective on our own assumptions that, whoops, we mm-hmm. forgot that step. <laughs> well, and, you know, thought that, oh, that was a failure of the actual approach, you know, because, oh, he got, he got dependent on that, that checklist or he got dependent on that external support, but the, the strategy worked. We just didn't quite take it to the next level. It's easy to assume that because it's natural for our brains that have, you know, more flow and executive function, it's easy to assume that like, oh, well, duh, he'll know not to show that. But I think, yeah, again, the only way we fail is not learning from it. So I'm sure you have put that as the last step <laughs> <Yes>. for <laughs> decision making. From the external <laughs> to the internal, from externalized supports to more cognitive um, problem solving. Definitely. That's the pinnacle. Is there anything else you'd like to share with a group of delightful people that we have that really want to improve executive function. You know, I think just, um, we've kind of alluded to this throughout is just really to, to stick with it. Things do get better. I mean, watching the evolution of my, my own, you know, child going through these different phases and, you know, it, boy, I'll tell you that those third, fourth, fifth grade years, they were rough and, a lot of Mm -hmm. strategy support and a lot of accommodations and, but it does get better. And as the brain matures, gets more ready for a lot of, of these strategies. And when, you know, you can match the right strategy with the right developmental timing, it's gold. So keep at it and recognize that it's a process and it takes time, but They'll, they'll grow into it. You know, like I said before, we have lots of great examples of adults who have some of these neurodevelopmental differences who really have become incredibly successful. So we just have to keep the faith, keep encouraging, keep supporting, keep <laughs> teaching, keep modeling the strategies and, and really just keep encouraging your kids, your students to follow their passions because that's what's going to get those juices flowing. And that's what's going to really sort of prime their brain to um, do its best just when they're passionate about what it is that they're doing. Patty Shutter, you are well, you are mine also. <laughs> I, I'm so proud of everything that you've done and, and you keep it going because I think you're doing some great work. I, thank you. Oh, I know the first time you reposted something of mine on Facebook, <laughs> I felt like I was going to paint. You really, you really shook up my perspective when I was just, it was right. It was the summer before I started teaching and I was so nervous. And then when I was reading over the IEPs, and I saw some of the needs of the kids. I was like, oh, I got a strategy <laughs> for that. Patty taught me this. And I just felt like I was itching for my more difficult kids. Well, difficult by perception on paper, I should say, because I felt like well, I see, knew what to do. There is an example of because right of you. strategy at the right time. Right. Well, and I was wrong because some of the strategies the kids were not ready for. And then I was frustrated with myself and all that. But, you know, I was that starry-eyed, it's going to work the first time, 22-year-old that needed some years <laughs> to realize, but I'm, I'm getting there. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because you had a great part of that. And I appreciate the work that you do and all the research that you share and our, dare I say, friendship now, Absolutely. which is well, so exciting. <laughs> I'm looking forward to continuing to, to follow your podcasts and, and your career. So keep it up. Tribe, Patty Shutter is amazing. 
I know you heard me be geeked out there a little bit, but man, I am so appreciative of her influence over my career and in turn turning it into something that I can help you with. So it's all Patty Shutter's fault. If you want more information about Patty Shutter or her research, you can go to the blog, sarahkesty.com forward slash blog forward slash episode 20, where I will also have a link to the curriculum that she developed a couple years ago. It is so inexpensive compared to the impact it will have when you use it with kids. So it's called the Study Skills Curriculum and it's available on Amazon and it'll be linked in the podcast notes as well. Have a great week. Sending all my love to you. Thank you for listening to the Executive Function Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please head over to sarahkesty.com where you'll find more resources and chances to connect with others. And please remember to like and review the show wherever you listen to this podcast. We're eager to transform the lives of even more families. 